Bhumagyana Timirandasya Gyananjana Salakaya Chakshur Militam Yena Tasmai Shri Guru Venamaha So welcome everybody, thank you so much for coming. Wow, everybody, yeah, we have enough room. Should we move up so you have more room in the back? Can we scooch up a little bit? Okay. Oh, fine. Hey. Well, this is such a special night to have you all here at the same time. I'm so overwhelmed um, by your presence here. I really appreciate you taking the time to come and, um, and share with us tonight. Swami Tripurari will be sharing what he knows as well. Um, yeah, this is perfect. Wow, y'all are so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, people I didn't think were coming are coming. And some took cabs to get here and some took planes to get here. And the effort um, to come together is, is inspiring. Um, and I'm sure that all of your efforts will be rewarded with a flowering of the heart, with a calming of the mind, and an increased desire to go further in your spiritual path. So, thank you, enjoy, and if you need anything, please feel free to ask my husband or myself if it's too hot, too cold, you need a drink. Now it's, um, if you need help, the restroom is off the hallway there, water is in the back room. So. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> O Magyana Timirandasya Gyananjana Salakaya Chaksurun Militam Yena Tasmai Sri Gurve Nama Vande Sri Krishna Chaitanya Nityananda Sohodito Gurudai Pushpavanto Chitrosando Tomonudo Monday Hamsi Ramakrishna Abhaya Charana Sako Sukodo Paramanando Sundaro Subalapriyo He Krishna Karuna Sindhu Dinabandhu Jagatpate Gopisha Gopika Kanta Radha Kanta Namustude Tapta Kanchana Gurangi Radhe Vrindavan Ishwari Prashabhanu Sute Devi Pranamami Hari Priye Sri Guru Vaishnava Guru Parampara Ki Jai Sri Radha Gobinda Ki Jai Gaur Premanande Guru So, nice to be here again. I've been here number of times now, so some of us are old friends and some new friends to be made as well this evening. Uh, Archie, our host, has, as usual, come up with an interesting topic I found out about a few minutes ago. 
<laughs> Let's see if I can remember it. It's the karmic uh, footprint, right? How do we? I'm sorry. How to reduce the karmic footprint? So uh, it's a challenge to think about and to speak about. Footprints are, of course, important. Feet are important. Hmm? So they represent where we stand, where we go, and to some extent what we do. Hmm? What we stand for, what we might stand against, that on which we stand, our foundation of sorts, our feet. So feet and footprints, they're important. They're important uh, materially, and feet seem to have a big place in the spiritual uh, circles of the East as, as well. It's, it's not really a foot fetish type of a <laughs> orientation, but uh, feet there are important. Uh, we have to come back to that, but... Uh, but materially speaking, feet are important. We know that, and and then the what, what is it? karmic footprint. So obviously, this is a play on the carbon footprint, which is a popular term, which refers to the amount of greenhouse gases that an individual, um, I guess, generates in the course of how they. They stand, how they walk, how they, how they live, how they uh, imprint themselves on the earth. Karmic kind of carbon footprint, I think that's a subset of the ecological footprint idea, which is computed annually uh, based on the amount of consumption of natural resources on the part of the humans, and then that compared or in relation to the amount of resources that the lands and the seas of the earth can generate, combined with the earth's capacity to assimilate and lend or render, I should say, um, unharmful the waste that comes from it. So that is the uh, what goes into the computation of the ecological footprint. And the last I read, it was 1.5. That means that um, it would take 1.5 Earths to generate enough resources and deal with the waste of regenerate the resources consumed by the human footprint and deal with the waste, so we're a little running as a on a deficit, as as it's popularly known and thought, and apparently so in uh, scientific uh, circles, it has been determined. We are uh, experiencing an environmental crisis. So um, that idea, of course, came quite some time ago. I believe it was in. 1967, that um, Lynn White Jr. wrote a famous article that was published in Scientific American that was the 
been the basis, the birth of environmental philosophy. Interestingly enough, um, he uh, very convincingly uh, demonstrated that the environmental crisis, as he saw it at, the, at that time, it was quite a long time ago, 1967, right? Can you remember what you were doing then, <laughs> if you were here? Um, he uh, traced the environmental crisis as he saw it, which has come to pass and be well accepted throughout the, uh, the planet these days, to a spiritual problem. He identified it as a spiritual problem. And in other words, he said that it has it had its origins in a a not so well conceived uh, idea of spirituality. In other words, if the spirituality was such that by practicing it, by applying oneself in terms of the spiritual disciplines advocated, that you didn't end up having a place to live. <laughs> then it was not a very well-thought-out um, idea. And, of course, he was referring to the early Christian idea, and I don't mean to criticize Christianity, but let's face it, all religions can be criticized a little bit. And uh, mine, too. So, or the, the, our tradition, in fact, we're in a, we come in a tradition, a Gaudiya tradition, in which the one of the prominent persons who was involved in bringing it westward, was very much known for his critique of the tradition itself. You know, Self-critique is important, and being a religious or spiritual person, so to critique the spirituality as it may have um, fostered a problem hmm, seems appropriate. Mr. White certainly thought so, and again, this gave birth to the environmental realm of environmental philosophy way back. He traced it back to Europe and the, uh, the Christian uh, idea of, of uh, well, kind of ghost-busting and you know, doing away with superstition, which is good in a sense, but taking the spirit out of the trees and uh, doing away with the fairies and uh, the pagan miracles and uh, superstitions and so forth and largely replacing them with one miracle. Hmm? It was a, one miracle to do away with all other miracles. Somebody was uh, rose from the dead. That was a pretty big miracle compared to what any local shaman was able to do um, or con- convince people that he might have been able to do or she might have been able to do and perhaps couldn't deliver any results and so forth. So it was the, you know, the, the, there is some value to, to that and... Um, and all, but it seemed to go, as I say, a little too far. Mr. White was wrong in one sense, in that he he didn't see that the Eastern spiritual traditions would have any value, hmm? that they wouldn't have any any potential to resolve the problem. Hmm? He thought it was largely due to just the cultural differences between East and and West, which are considerable, although. There, there's obviously been a, a relaxing of that and a merging of the two, and it's one planet and so on and so forth. At any rate, suffice to say that he wisely uh, concluded that the environmental crisis was at heart a spiritual crisis, and this is uh, the, it's commonly thought of 
in that light today. <clears throat> Nature um, has a soul, so to speak. We are the soul of nature, really. We are part of nature and animality as much as we are uh, a human animal. But the human animal obviously is unique in that it starts to think about itself, that self-identify in ways that less developed forms of life uh, don't appear to, don't philosophize, don't don't um, don't fall in love and and don't have existential crises and so forth, which I like to think of uh, is what uh, human life is largely constituted of. It's an existential crisis. It's a time in which nature realizes it has a soul. And human life is so unique in that regard that early, some early Christian thinkers, um, like Descartes, for example, who uh, he, he had helped to distinguish humanity from nature um, because he thought, because I think, I am, and other species don't think, and therefore, in a meaningful way, they aren't, and they are to do with, as we see fit, for our purposes, very human-centric kind of idea, and we're the children of God, so God will be pleased if his children are happy. It's obviously an oversimplification, and there was a lot of value to some of the ideas that he he came up with there, that, that dualism is not very popular, dualism meaning consciousness and matter being, uh, in today's world where they try to fit consciousness into matter, and they're having difficulty doing that, <laughs> to make the subjective objective. That's a difficult chore. Hmm? Do you follow me? The subjective realm of consciousness to try to turn it into matter, to reduce it to matter, that's a difficult test. That's why they've been having a difficult time dealing with it. Um, for the longest time, it's been, it was ignored. Hmm? Consciousness was ignored. But it wasn't needed in Newton's way of looking at the world, which was very mechanical. Hmm? There were various forces that were determined, that determined the things that happen. Hmm? And... There was no room for anything outside of that. It was a closed system, as it was thought, to um, influence the world. So consciousness, although it kind of seems to be out of the objective world, being subjective, must be inside of it. Hmm? But no need to philosophize about it because it's just something that's there and it can't have any influence, was the idea. It's a witness, I suppose. Uh, it comes about at a certain time. It disappears at a certain time. So at any rate, science is now, of course, things have changed in science. And from Newtonian classical and a world view of the, of, the, of the physical world, we have a different a quantum view that has to be considered. And, and of course, then consciousness has suddenly come into play again and been important and have to figure it out, what it is and how it fits. And we try to fit it into matter as best we can in the scientific circle, but it doesn't fit very well. I haven't been able to explain it. Um, uh, and, of course, the yogic theory, the Vedanta theory, the spiritual theory from the East, and really from the West as well about consciousness, is that it can't be explained as matter because 
that subjective realm of consciousness is categorically different from the um, objective world of of matter. And some thoughtful people have also looked at the mind-brain problem, which kind of comes up in this connection, from a quantum point of view, and found room empirically to give us a will, if you will, hmm? to take us out of a, of, of a deterministic um, worldview uh, and indeed to find that we ourselves are, are, in, are potentially primal. It sounds like how we feel, right? <laughs> Subjectively. We feel we make choices. We feel we have a will. We feel we, the things start up here, for example, in the head, and then they are carried out down here in the body, that consciousness, if we could locate it in the head where they try to find it, is causal. Of course, we say it's more in the heart in the spiritual tradition than in the head, especially in the bhakti tradition. You know, beauty, love, that's in the eye of the beholder and the lover. So, well, in the West, this idea of looking and thinking about consciousness caused a kind of a bifurcation between humanity and nature that led eventually to the isolation of humanity from the world and a different kind of existential crisis. This didn't occur in the East, where the term karma comes from. So we come from the ecological footprint to the topic night, the karmic footprint ecological footprint oh, takes into consideration that, as I said, well, resources that we take, are we taking them in such a way that there's enough to, from the, the earth has a capacity to regenerate them, that we can live peacefully and we should be thoughtful about that. We should be conscious about that. We should be conscious about how we live, how we spend, how we consume, hmm? what the, uh, what the, uh, limit of the natural resources there are and, and, and so forth. I mean, you know, we didn't live like that always. I remember when the first no littering sign came up. I was living in the Midwest. Five, I think it was a $500, maybe it was a $50. $50 were like 500 then. $50 fine. People used to just throw things out the window. <laughs> it's hard to think of. Some of you have been around that long. We just, you know, we used to throw things out the window. No littering. We've come some distance since then by force of necessity. Hmm? Necessity, by the force of nature, so to speak, speaking back to us. Hmm? And, um, and so this has been very, this is very central to the Eastern, Eastern, uh, philosophy. Eastern philosophy has largely been, th- uh, theological or, a philosophy that's based on understanding, thinking about the ramifications, the implications of revelation. In the East, the revelation is the Upanishads. It's a nice word, Upanishad. Upanishad means to, it, literally it means and it, to come close, to sit close. Sit close. The implication is that if you sit close, 
I'll tell you something that I can't tell everybody. It's a, it's a different kind of knowledge. Hmm? I'll and classically whisper it in your ear, in the right ear. The mantra goes into the right ear, hmm? from the right heart of the right person. And through the ear it enters into the heart. This is the idea of the guru. The guru, from his heart, from her heart, something's happening. As I said, in the East, consciousness is said to be seated in the heart more than the head. It causes the head to work. The head is a, the head is a playing out the, and the body. The heart is the driver and the body and the mind, the chariot, the mind or the, the reins. So wherever the heart goes and the body follows, the chariot follows and so forth. So from the heart, who has plumbed the depths of this consciousness. As I say, in science we try to understand what is consciousness by empiric methods and so forth. We're trying to bring it into matter and make it objective so we can control it and and um, and so that, well, um, they can make sense out of it in a sense because if it's not material, then it's hard to make sense out of everything else we've figured out about the world. It kind of turns everything upside down. Hmm? So we're kind of like, we've made some progress, we've got food, some food, we've got things, we've got more things, things so things seem to be better. <laughs> but we're not things, of course, is what we're teaching from the East. We're not things. We're not objects. The best things in life are not things. Hmm? We are the best, so to speak. The subjective side is the best. Hmm? The experiencer is better than the experienced. Hmm? There's no methodology in the modern world to find consciousness. They're trying to find consciousness by the methods by which we've ascertained other things that are material, but if it is spiritual, and there's as much reason to believe that, that consciousness is spiritual as there is not, if not more, at least common sense and collective intuition are things that we can count on the side of um, choosing that consciousness is spiritual, that we have a will, hmm? that consciousness is causal. And so forth. There are other things, too, to our side, to that side. Eastern side. Hmm? Um, collective intuition. In other words, everybody feels like they exist and that they have meaning and purpose, that life has some purpose. But it'd be not everybody, but most of the people Freud met felt that way. He himself couldn't re relate to it, he said. It's that oceanic, what did he call it? Oceanic, what was it? The oceanic feeling. Some of my clients say they have this oceanic feeling that there's more to them than what meets the eye. Hmm? Actually, he was corresponding, as history goes, with a with a fellow who was very fond of Vivekananda and uh, the writings of Ram Krishna, which who are Vedantists from a different school of Vedanta than myself, but Vedantist nonetheless. Which Vedanta is dealing with consciousness in a different way than science is seeking to deal with it. He was corresponding with this fellow, and he, this fellow was explaining this 
oceanic feeling. And I think Freud would say, yeah, some of my clients feel they have that. I, I have a hard time relating to that. But most people feel that way. There's more to me hmm, than what meets the eye. There's meaning to life. There's a higher purpose. Something It's all for some reason. It must be a good reason. Hmm? We're trying to trace that out. It's our self that we try to find. Hmm? That self that is the more. Hmm? The subjective side, consciousness. Hmm? So we don't have a discipline in Western society for actually experiencing that in the here and the now. Not materially speaking, in science, we're trying to, and there are th- various theories about it, consciousness, how it's material, but they don't even convince contemporaries in the same field. There's a dozen or so or more of them. Hmm? Material explanations of consciousness that just don't, they're, they, they can't be demonstrated, in other words. Hmm? I've said there are some thoughtful people who looked at it from a quantum point of view, who have interesting insights that lean in the direction then of the West that should be considered, but it's so problematic. It would they it is thought that if that were to be true, but of course truth can't be problematic, can it? Hmm. And it might be unsettling, and that might be good. Hmm. In our Eastern view, we have a thought that truth is also beautiful. Being, knowing, and and beauty, bliss. These are elements that we are constituted of as consciousness. This is the experience then in the East. And there's a discipline for knowing that. That's called yoga. Yoga is basically, very, very basically, a discipline by which we seek to separate consciousness from matter and demonstrate that it exists independently of our psychic and physical dimension. And that the psychic and physical identification that we're presently experiencing is oppressive. It makes us feel that I we want to be, we want to know, we want to enjoy, and we miss the fact that we do be, we are units of knowing and units of ecstasy. That big word, want. I want to be, I want to know, I want to enjoy. We lose sight of the fact that you are a unit of enjoyment. Ando, my our source is anandam, joy. It ex- it, reality exists. It's aware of the fact that it exists. It's cognizant. Sat, it exists. Chit, it's cognizant of the fact that it exists. And it exists for a purpose. What is the purpose? The no purpose. It's a no purpose purpose for ananda. If you exist only for joy, then you have no purpose, right? You have nothing to accomplish. For love, for ecstasy. But our identification with matter, physical and psychic, we have two dimensions of matter, a subtle kind of matter and a crude 
or basic gross type of matter, the physical and the mental. This mental is a link. Science doesn't identify mind yet as different from matter. And then they conflate consciousness with mind. In Vedanta, we distinguish consciousness from mind and mind from matter. Consciousness is categorically different from mind and matter. Mind is different from matter in that it's a subtle form of matter. You know that psychic world that where, where so many things are possible? Hmm? You can have gold and you can have a mountain in the physical world, but you can't have a golden mountain. But in your dreams you can, right? In the realm of the mind you can. There are so many possibilities there. Hmm? There are laws that govern the realm of mind, according to Vedanta. Yoga seeks to, to understand those laws hmm? and make that sea of the mind that's moving with waves of emotions that are often disconcerting. Make it still. Make it peaceful. Chitta vritti nirodha. There's a science, is what I want to say, in the, in the sense a, a system hmm? for distinguishing and ex- experiencing the theory that there's a difference between consciousness and matter. And I am consciousness. I am not matter. It means I'm not this body. I'm not this mind, which is goes through very troublesome states. It goes through some happy states, but they don't endure either. Hmm? It's like I said, like riding the waves of an ocean. So to, to kind of come out from underneath the oppression of the mind, the oppression of the senses, the physical world. Hmm? This is what yoga is about. So in yoga we seek, through a, a method, a system, to, to separate consciousness from matter. Obviously we can't separate it entirely, otherwise without consciousness, the theory goes, the body won't hold up. Without the driver, the car won't go anywhere. Hmm? Right? So this is the theory. So we can't separate it entirely without losing the species, at least part of the species, the, the, the frame, the mortal frame, if you will, that we're experimenting with. But take the example of the yogi in the cave for about 30 years. Hmm? Now, from our point of view, that person has pretty much distinguished or separated his conscious self from the material self. Because what is our material self? Our material self is the I that we have, materially speaking. I call it the conventional ego. It's a convention. It, 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 it's, it's based on my. You follow me? What I think is mine determines what I am. My my determines my I. If it's my state, my house, my car, I'm North Carolinian, I'm a whatever, my cigarette, I'm a Marlboro man, I'm a, you know, whatever it is. Whatever is my my determines my sense of I. And what is the fact as far as our my goes? What is ours? You got it. If you can't keep it, then who it really belongs to, time, if you will, hmm? 
if we were to personify time, would that be such a bad thing, such a horrible anthropomorphic extension to personify time, to give time intelligence? It's more intelligent than we are. <laughs> it keeps all things and takes all things away from us. Hmm? How intelligent are we? We think we own something, and then we form an identity based on that misconception, then try to maintain it, fight with others over it, and so forth. That yogi in the cave, what does he have? What does she own? Her my is very small. And her eye is very big, actually. Chaitanya Dev, Sri Chaitanya, who's, 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 uh, appearance in the world gave birth to our particular lineage several hundreds of years ago. Hmm? We sing about him, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. He, uh, he, he lived in a cave almost. He, he lived in a room. It was like, it's like a stone room. It's eight by six, no windows. Hmm? Out of that, imagine it's a small. Con- very contained, but out of that this whole lineage has come, and from India to the Western world, and and, and so forth. It's a big lineage, actually. Hmm? So much understanding of the I, hmm? sense of I. What he thought about, what was the I? This is such a charming sense of I that he, in other words, I means that consciousness, plumbing the depths of consciousness, he lived in a small room and melted. He literally melted in ecstasy. Sometimes he would be found outside of the room and his disciples thought, he must have gone under the door. There was no way to get out. Hmm? He melted. They found him in his states of ecstatic transformation. When he would sing, Nam. Nam means name. Hmm? Krishna Nam. Hmm? When he would sing the name, he would fall. He would melt. Tears would pour from his eyes hmm? in ecstasy and shower those around him hmm? with love. He he thought about the self, hmm? not idly, hmm? in the way that brought him to action, not idle thoughts. He applied himself in such a way that he explored not only the fact, experienced not only the fact that there's a difference between consciousness and matter, and I'm of the nature of consciousness. But what is the nature of consciousness? He plumbed the depths of this. He found that the consciousness of consciousness is love, he said. Huh? This is how then this whole Gaudiya theology is it explains this in some depth. His contribution uh is uh um, immense. Hmm? We should say something about saying something. Hmm? Jaya Sachinandana Suramuni Bandana Pavabaya Kandana Jayate Jaya Sachinandana Suramuni Bandana Pavabaya Kandana Jayate Nichai go, 
Jai Satchinandan Gaurari. This is a kind of yoga also. Hmm? We're talking about yoga. Separating consciousness from matter. Hmm? If we isolate ourselves from things that our body and mind think <laughs> or feel that they need, we may find that we don't need those things and that we're, we're better off without those needs, without things. As I said, the things are not the most important thing in life. It's ourself. What makes a thing important? Think about it. What makes a thing important to you is you. Again, if it is your car and it gets a flat tire, it's a problem. If it's mine, it's not such a big deal. <laughs> Because you are in the car. What I don't mean necessarily driving it. Even if someone else is driving your car without oil, then you find out. It is a problem for you because you have gone into the thing. You have identified with it. You've extended yourself. Consciousness has extended itself into matter, identified with it, and it's a crisis for you. It's part of you. It's, it's, it's defining you. So what's, what's really important about that thing? You. If you were somewhere else, that thing would not be important to you. So you are what is important. Consciousness is what is important. Yoga seeks to separate out this consciousness from its identification with matter. That's making it lose sight, causing it to lose sight of itself. Hmm? So there are certain yogic disciplines and so forth, but the basic idea of yoga is this. It's an experiment. We learn to control the senses which, through which, which are the instruments through which we reach out, so to speak, and contact the world and get attached to things, smells, tastes, forms that we see, songs that we hear, and so forth. Hmm? And then they're in, informing us and we're developing likes and dislikes, happies and sads, goods and bads, and identity is forming and so on. Yoga seeks to take that energy instead of ext consciousness extending itself out through the instruments of the senses to the world to focus it within, focus consciousness on itself. Hmm? And so there's a separation then from the world, if you will, of things. And we find that this consciousness flourishes not only without things, but better. It feels more full. It feels more complete. As Zen would say, less is more, it's, as it turned out. The spiritual life have to be logical. It doesn't have to be illogical, but <laughs> it doesn't have to, it could be translogical, transrational where suddenly less becomes more. Hmm? Let's put it in a bhakti context, then, a devotional context, the yoga of love, where the singing, for example, takes precedent. Hmm? By giving, then we get more, don't we? I've often said, we can't hold it up and say, look what I got for giving. We might, 
But that takes away from the giving, doesn't it? I got this, see? I gave that and I got this. Hmm? This is a very beginning religious idea. I'll give so that I can get. I'll give a prayer and God will give me my daily bread. Hmm? This is, in, in, in the Eastern tradition, this idea is there as well. It's a very kind of basic idea. It's kind of a childish religious idea. Children want, give me, I want, I want, I want. We say, do this and then I'll give you that. Okay, You do this and I'll give you that. They think that the getting the thing is what it's all about, but there's a lesson that's more important, isn't it? Do this, and then you'll get that. Do this. They're supposed to get something from doing this, whatever you tell them to do also. Gradually they understand, oh, it wasn't the thing, was it? There was some other lesson involved. So there's a way of teaching like this in religion as well, a kind of a very beginning way. Hmm? But what we're to learn from that eventually, gradually, is that, is that oh, the, the giving, by giving things away, I, 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 I become bigger. Hmm? I gain. Hmm? What do we gain? We gain ourself. Because the self has the capacity to give. It's a lover by nature. Hmm? It has the I mean, but that's what we find. Human life is this point in our evolution. However you want to think about evolution, and there are a lot of different ways. This is a different way, but in our evolution as a self, moving through different forms of life, arriving now at the human form of life, where we can think about ourselves, the fact that we exist, then it becomes a problem. Do I exist? I think I exist. I should exist. I want to exist. I might not exist. I can't prove it. I, it's all, all of, as I said, human life is like an existential crisis. But what we find in human life is that the self whatever that is, hmm, uh, has an opportunity to do things voluntarily in a way that that transcends what we find in the less complex forms of life. In rudimentary forms, we may find some giving, some sacrificing, but human life is all about the opportunity to sacrifice, isn't it? It's all about... It. You, you, will, you grow by giving. In other words... In human life, we can do things voluntarily. We can say, you first, excuse me. Hmm? We don't find that happening, you know, amongst our pets. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Consciousness is more developed, more, more, more uncovered, if you will, less covered in human life. And what we find, it, it's, you find it's a giver. Hmm? This is its natural position. The animal idea is the taking side. Matter requires something for it to have meaning. Us. You understand? Without us, matter has no meaning. If the world mattered independent of consciousness, who would know about it? Who would care about it? Consciousness is the carer, right? Consciousness is the knower. This is this, hmm? and consciousness by nature is a giver. Just look at the scale on life, hmm? the different forms of life. The more complex the form of life, the more we find consciousness is present. The more it expresses itself in terms of giving. Even we find chimpanzees some giving, some dogs do some extraordinary things of giving. It, it, it happens. 
And in human life, this takes a huge leap, a huge leap. And we can actually experience that the more we give, the bigger we become. It's a little different than less is more, because giving is a big thing, isn't it? Giving is more. That's the more to us. So in bhakti yoga, so this is we, we teach bhakti yoga, different kinds of yoga, but the basic idea of yoga is this Eastern, if you will, uh, experiment to demonst- that seeks to demonstrate the theory that there's a difference between consciousness and matter, that consciousness is a unit of will, it's independent of matter, it's causal. Hmm? When the physical and psychic dimensions of our life close down, it goes on. And there's there's considerable data that's been collected from this experiment, like people living in caves, or people like this just living for singing. <laughs> what kind of life? How do they eat? What do they do? We just sing and talk about it. Then when they talk about it enough, we sing about it more. Hmm? This is bhakti, bhakti yoga. It's a yoga. Hmm? It's a Vedanta. It's a, some head to it. Our singing isn't just you know superstitious or, or or sentimental. There's a head to it. But we use our head to soften our hearts to find out how we can give the most. We know there's two elements involved here then. One, the giving has to be without any thinking of getting, any motivation. It has to be selfless. But we try to hone that giving, that it will be selfless. And then we also know in order to give completely, we have to find a center that can take completely. I may give myself completely to my husband, but he may not give back, or he may not, he may pass away, he may disappear. Hmm? Then what? So we, we give ourselves to our husband, to our wife, to our children, or to our country. Uh, there's a limitation to how much we can give in a sense. If that's as big as our idea is, I'm an American. I suppose that's bigger than I'm a North Carolinan, which might be bigger than I'm a Winston-Salem, you know, (laughs) or whatever. Or I just live on this block. This is my house. I'm this number on this mailbox. You know, the idea gets bigger. But if, if we want to make find the biggest idea where we can, if we, if, we, if we realize giving, love is the nature of consciousness. Consciousness thrives in the context of love. It's a unit of loving capacity. Hmm? Love must be unmotivated and uninterrupted. If the object of my love that I repose my love in is to be interrupted, this is to disappear at some point, then I cannot give, I, I'm not found the center to which I can give comprehensively and realize the fullness of myself as a unit of consciousness. Hmm? We call that center Krishna. That's all. Now you have to think about that word, <laughs> what all that means. That's a whole, that's a huge, huge discussion. Hmm? Well, this is a word for that. Hmm? Two syllables, Krishna. We find it has a lot of nectar in that. It has ecstasy in that. Hmm? By singing that name. And I said a lot of philosophy to support that and so forth. An example, this Chaitanya Dev who we sang about Jaya Satchinandan Suramuni Bandana Baba Baya Kandana Jayo He. 
he personified that ecstasy and that reality of of the of, of the idea that the name and the named are one. There's, there's, a, there's a name for reality that most accurately describes it hmm? as ecstasy, kind of personified, if you will. Again, what's the problem with personifying things? We personify time. Hmm? Why not? Time has no intelligence. More smarter than us, as I said. Hmm? Uh, bigger than us. The hand of God, if you will. So bhakti yoga. Hmm? This is the yoga of love. Yoga of heart. Hmm? And it is a successful experiment hmm? in terms of demonstrating individually and what could be more important anyway. If you can prove it to yourself, then you should be satisfied, right? So what if you can't prove it to everybody else? Does that matter? Think about it. If you can prove something to your own satisfaction, then enough, right? So we cannot prove, for example, to the whole world everything I'm saying. I acknowledge that. Of course, we are saying that consciousness is subjective, it's non-material, it's categorically different than body, mind, intelligence, it gives meaning to body, it gives meaning to mind and intelligence. It can't be proved objectively because it's not an object. You understand? I can say, I experienced myself, and I'm not this body, I'm not the mind, I'm a unit of ecstasy. And we say, can you prove that? Hmm? You don't have to, <laughs> is the point. <laughs> You'd like to think like that? Hmm? And there's a considerable amount of philosophy to support that possibility. There's even some empiric data, if you need it, that we could assemble it makes for a reasonable theory, at least. Hmm? And then you can take this, uh, on the strength of that, you can uh, embrace the discipline of yoga, especially of bhakti, which is so easy to embrace. The seeing is not difficult. Hmm? To chant is not difficult. That's what we do. We sing about something, hmm? usually about love. Hmm? So that's all. That's what bhakti yoga is about. Only it's honing the love and centering it properly. In this, then we say, you can experience it yourself. Yeah, you can't convince your neighbor necessarily or the scientist down the road, but as you have, do you have to? As I said earlier, I think the other day, you can't. We can't prove that we exist, but we don't hesitate from getting up in the morning on account of that. Our subjective experience is that we exist. And we live our life accordingly. Subjective experience has more value than sometimes is thought in our rationally troubled world. The troubled, we're troubled to make every, to make sense out of everything. I know I'm trying to make sense out of this for all of you. <laughs> but I'm saying only to a point, is that possible? Hmm? And luckily for us, there's something that transcends reason, and it's us. Hmm? Reason is a very... Well, reason sets us free from animality. That's true to an extent. Hmm? 
but it doesn't allow us to proceed without caution. And that is a real life. That is a life of the homeland. In the homeland of the heart, then we proceed without caution. Do you understand me? When you're home, then you're in a familiar area. You don't have to wonder what's in the bottle when you look on the shelf. Hmm? Right? You're home. Hmm? Home is in the heart. Hmm? And for home going, which is so close in our heart, yet so far away, we could use some help. Think about it. You are so close to your home, and we are so far away. The home is within you, and you are running everywhere in other direction, outside, for things, trying to make your life comfortable and feel at home. So it seems so simple, but we're having a hard time getting home, going home. So, for this we need help. This is the idea of, the, of a sadhu, of a guru. Not a big person. No. He's not a big person. Not in his or her own estimation. We have an ashram, a monastery in Central America. And there's a gentleman who, who used to own the property, elderly, who's, who, who, who's our guide. He knows every fruit, every flower, every tree, every stone, where every spring of water is, where there will be a spring, where there was a spring, hmm? what will happen in the spring, what will happen in the summer, <laughs> in the winter, and the fall. Hmm? He's our guide so to speak. When we went there, he showed us everything. and So we will defer to him for knowledge of the local reality. Hmm? But he just thinks of himself as just a common person. To, to be aware of things, that's just normal. That's just to be, that should be understood. Hmm? To be acquainted with one's own heart and one's own inner self. Well, that makes sense. We should pay attention. That's no big accomplishment on my part. Hmm? If I can help you to do that, it's, and it's a simple thing from his to her estimation, the guru, it's a simple task. I'm not here to bring you, he will think, any big thing, any big, great wisdom. I'm here to turn you to your own heart, to, to tell you the things that you, that you should know. Hmm? You want to be happy. You are happiness. You want to exist. You are a unit of existence. You want to know. You're an exist, a unit of knowing. Hmm? Just turn your just turn your head this way. It's so simple, but it's so hard for us. Hmm? So hard for us. So much we've been oriented in another direction, hmm? with things and some comfort. Right? Felt good last night. Felt good today, today, maybe tomorrow. So there's that constant appetizer that you're just by collecting a few more things or another partner or, or whatever it may be, changing the you know parts, moving them around. It's all going to work. I'm going to get a square meal, but it's just a continual appetizer, and the result is indigestion. Hmm? 
big case of indigestion hmm? problem. Hmm? So a little help, that's all. I said earlier, this uh, mantram, it comes from the heart of the guru hmm? into our ear, and then it goes into our heart there, hmm? and acquaints us with ourself. It's a sound formula for that. Hmm? Hmm? Who has some experience there? For home, who's home, who's going home? When he or she speaks, we say that. Oh, that hit home. Hmm? It touched my heart. I knew that was right. I knew it. I didn't even understand, but I knew it was right. He said something. It was right. I feel it. These types of talks are meant to help us feel what we are. Hmm? If we can stay in this kind of company, then, oh, that will be very good for us. Because as soon as we go outside, that mind comes back on. You see? Thinks about the things that I need to get, the things that I need to get rid of, hmm? the things that I've got to do, things that I don't want to do. I've got the things that I've got to stop doing. That might be good to think about. <laughs> hmm? And then we would think, that was a great experience, chanting, talking about these things. It was inspirational. And the next day will come, and, but there are other things, there are more things important. And, 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 and it was just an interesting talk. It was okay, something, and there we go again. Hmm? The world comes on, so to speak. The call of the wild. We're drawn towards our animality at the cost of our spirituality. And what do we do when that happens? We create a karmic footprint. A huge karmic footprint. Let's take the idea. Feet are important, right? <laughs> we said that. Feet are important. And how much carbon we use, that's important too. What is our carbon footprint? What is our ecological footprint? But after all, these things all deal largely with our animality, right? We want the world to be preserved so that we can continue to consume it. Okay, we're willing to consume only so much because there is only so much, but we're oriented towards consuming it because we feel that we have necessities and our body does have necessities. But we're not the body, so those are false necessities. Those are a product of misidentification. Hmm? So we're trying to take this kind of, if you will, ecological carbon footprint, I believe the idea behind the talk must be, to, to a, a bigger idea by calling, speaking about a karmic footprint. What is the idea of karma? Karma, of course, is a theory hmm, that acknowledges that there is this something called consciousness and it's different from matter. Hmm? And there are, there, are, there are laws that govern thoughts and reactions to thoughts as there are reactions to things that we do, like in a very crude sense, materially speaking, we, 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 you know, actions produce reactions and so forth. So there are, there, it extends into the moral realm as well. Hmm? How we think, what is, what, what, what is our uh, state of our consciousness, this causes repercussions and so forth. When we take, which we must, as much as we've identified with needs, we owe. This is the karmic idea. We take, we consume, 
and we owe. And from the Vedanta perspective, from the yogic perspective, believe me, we've consumed a lot for a long time. How long have we been around? Long time. In human dress, maybe a short time. But for many, many lifetimes, in different forms of life, to come to human life. We've consumed, we've taken, and we owe. We owe in a huge, huge amount. The karmic debt is un- unbelievable. How to reduce that karmic debt? Hmm? This is the idea of the guide. For home-going, a home-knowing person is essential. Hmm? What is the home-knowing person? home-knowing person is like that lawyer hmm? who takes charge of your case when you declare bankruptcy because you have maxed out all of your cards and you can't any you have no life your life is only paying your debts you have no life of your own you declare bankruptcy you come under the protection of the court they keep the creditors away hmm? the karmic the, the, the debt is managed in such a way that you can have a life you can go to the movies hmm? you can you know shop at whole foods tonight you know whole paycheck uh, <laughs> you start to get a little life so our karmic debt is huge, the extent to which we've consumed through so many forms of life, taken, and we owe. Hmm? And we need some mediation, is the idea. Hmm? And so simple of a thing, as I said, just turning to a heart, really is so difficult. So some guidance. This is the idea of the guru. Hmm? Hmm? See guru, and he has feet. Charana padma. Hmm? I said this Eastern idea has much about feet. Shri Guru Charana Padma. Feet. And they are called lotus feet. Hmm? Now, lotus and feet, how does that go together? Hmm? You see, you have to think about it. Lotus in Indian poetry and so forth, literature, is the symbol of beauty, the lotus. Now, the feet aren't particularly beautiful. They're like, you know, usually have some cracks. And, <laughs> and uh, of course, in ancient times, people would readily walk barefoot, so they were muddy and on the ground and, and so forth. And if you touch people with your feet, they think, no, that's not the way to go. Hmm? That's rather, oh, you touched me with your foot. You kicked me. Hmm? So feet are the bottom of the body, and here we're calling the feet... Lotus, beautiful feet. Hmm? It means how he or she, the guru, walks is such that they don't muddy the field. Hmm? They don't walk. The guru doesn't move in such a way as to take and be implicated in karmic repercussions, but moving yadricha, isn't it? Only to give. This is what is called luck in Vedanta, sadhu sangha, association with saintly persons. That is good fortune. There's no reason to that. They are moving not out of reason, but out of love, not for taking, but for giving only. So their feet, Sri Guru Charana Padma. Sri Guru Charana Padma. Give all of
Seguro Charona Padma Kevala Bhakati Sadma The idea is something like this, and I'll close with this, and then ask her any questions. The lotus is grounded beneath the water in the mud, but it sits above the mud on the water very beautifully. So the idea is to be, in the language of Sri Krishna in the Gita, for example, to be in the world, but not of the world. Hmm? That is the real art of yoga. Any question? Yes, sir. Yes, uh, since consciousness can be analyzed to a mathematical equation, what would be the true goal of that? <coughs> is it just lightning in a bottle? Consciousness can be analyzed to a mathematical equation. Who did it? What's the goal of that? Who has done that? Some people are trying to do that. Some people are trying to do that. They haven't done that. Some people are trying. In the scientific community, there's a huge effort to try to understand consciousness as a function of the brain and explain it, therefore, if you will, mathematically. The goal of that, which is not the goal of yoga <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination, the goal of that is to um, continue on with this kind of boring life, if you will. The goal of that is to is to is to say that matter is or consciousness is matter, and there is nothing that's transcendental to matter. There is nothing categorically different from matter. There is no soul. There is no atma. By extension, there is no god. There is no afterlife. And let's get real. And, and more, the goal of that really is to say there is no meaning to life, there is no purpose to life, and the goal of that is to demonstrate that although you think you exist, you really don't exist, it's just a trick of your brain that causes you to think that you exist, and you tell me what the goal of that is. There is no goal to that, there is no meaning to that. <laughs> the goal of that is to say that there is no meaning, and why should we be trying to figure that out? Because... We are pressed to find meaning. Hmm? We are pressed to find out, and in this instance to conclude, that there is no meaning. That's the meaning. But there's got to be a meaning. We're driven to find a meaning. We're driven to find a meaning, and, and, and without proper, without good guidance from, from the spiritual side, we're driven to conclude that there's no meaning, and we're sure about that. And I mean, that's absurd, obviously. Hmm? To be, <laughs> to, that's an absurdity. 
and there are plenty of philosophers who would agree with that, that it's absurd hmm? to say that, you know, the very idea that to dismiss consciousness is the height of absurdity because consciousness is required for the act of dismissal. It's a philosophical absurdity, but some people are driven in that direction. And then who knows why they do that? Because they grew up in a certain religion that gave them a hard time, you know, and uh, they feel that they're psychologically damaged because of it, so they're now, you know, there are all kinds of reasons. They're thoughtful people who just doesn't quite make sense to them. They just, they need proof. They need the kind of validation that consciousness says, I'm not giving, I'm not showing up in the court. You know, God's not going to show up in the court of reason. He transcends reason. I'm sorry. Maybe it's like uh, somebody's trying to look, uh, win the Nobel Peace Prize. That's why they're finding the answer out for the money. They might, but I don't know how peaceful that would make the world. <laughs> because if you found out there's there's no meaning, well, then, hey, anything goes, right? Go for it. I don't think that that, yeah. Well, anyway. <laughs> Another question? Yes. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about spiritual karma and if there's a way to evolve, to develop our spiritual evolution through that? Well, I should say about... Uh, uh, karma really refers to the material realm, the realm of, you know, uh, of taking and owing as a result of it. There is good karma and there is bad karma. But good karma, to use the carbon footprint, you know, um, reference point, what good karma is like is the carbon, what do they call them? Carbon offsetting? Offset. Yeah, carbon offsetting. That's called, that would be an example of good karma. You try to like still take, but not too much. Hmm? Uh, well, it's taking. The carbon off, as I understand it, the carbon the carbon offsetting is to offset. It's like I'll do something good to make up for something bad that I've done. The example in the in the in Bhagwat, some of the texts are: if an elephant is rolling in the sand and then goes into the river to bathe himself, then comes back out and rolls in the sand. What's the good of that? So to do. Good karma to offset bad karma is relatively good, but not a real comprehensive solution to the problem, which is taking. And carbon, off, carbon offsetting, I think it's the same idea, isn't it? You do something, and then you can consume. You, 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 you have an allowance. Pardon me? You have an allowance. In other words, yeah. you have a big factory. So. Yeah, so it's like that. So, so karma, anyway, is in the realm of... It's in the realm of taking because it's it's um, it, con- it it means action and the repercussions of action and spiritual life is without action in a sense hmm? without action in relation to the world and things and so forth to withdraw from them. Now that doesn't mean that spiritual life is inactive in itself. Um, so there are ways in which we can interact without taking. Right, that's what loving is about. Hmm? We can interact without taking. So that's the art of yoga that has to be learned. Um, so we would call spiritual activity in the highest sense leela instead of karma because karma is, 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 is obligatory. In other words, 
I've done something and now I've got to pay for it. I've taken something, now I have to pay for it. But there may be action that doesn't ha- that's not taking. So what's that? In other words, if I do something that's not, then, it, then like for God, for example, God has nothing to take because everything belongs to God. But God acts. So what is that? That's what we call lila. We call that play. Hmm? Hmm? That in the center, at the basis of that is love. In other words, love is a movement, right? I've said often that we cannot rest until we find love. And when we find it, oh goodness, and we go, we're off again, right? And it's quite a roller coaster ride. Hmm? So love has an orbit, so to speak, of its own. So to take this spiritual, I'm using a material example, and we all nod your heads. Yeah, I've been in love. I know what that's like. I want it, but, you know, they both say it. Can't live with them, can't live without them. Um, so, Leela's like this, in other words. This bhakti is meant to acquaint us not only with the fact that there's a difference between ourself and the body, and the body and the mind are driving us to move in a meaningless way, you know, like a chicken after its head's cut off, is going around, there's movement. It's a crude example, forgive me. But it's not any meaningful movement. In the bigger sense, our movement is not meaningful, like driven by the mind. I mean, we're conscious, we're driven by matter. Matter has, as I said earlier, no meaning without consciousness, no value. And we are being driven by, the, by, by, by matter's influence in the form of mind and senses. And these, this makes no sense. Hmm? I'm driven by that. I'm moving in that way. So stop that movement. Hmm? And you don't have to move to acquire. You're more than anything you can acquire. As you are. Hmm? As an atma, as a unit of consciousness. So that's the kind of the beginning of spirit, real spiritual life, if you will. So there's a stopping there. Hmm? Now, in bhakti, we talk about movement from there. So maybe that's what you're referring to. Movement from there onward. Hmm? So that is what we mean by a yoga of love rather than a yoga that just seeks to still hmm, the mind and the senses and make me peaceful. There's a difference between peace and love. Hmm? Right? There's a difference between peace and love. We want both. Peace and love. <laughs> We really want a piece of love. <laughs> that's, that's what we want. <laughs> so, so the peace, I mean, the re, in other words, in the context of bhakti, you get the peace from the demands of the world. There's a rest from that, respite from that. But there's another movement now that we come, in, we, we come into, the, into the circle of. Because this bhakti is, seeks to acquaint us deeply with the nature of consciousness, as I said, as a giver, with love as it as its core, the consciousness of consciousness is love. Hmm? So this is what takes us then transports us into the ideas of Krishna and Leela and all those cows and those those other milk maidens and and so what's that all about, you see? This is all about Leela. This is all a way of speaking about philosophically, theologically, that the absolute has a life, has 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 a uh, 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 capacity to reciprocate. Um, that there's enough difference between ourselves and God, and oneness between ourselves and God, for there to be reciprocal dealings. Hmm? 
This is a nice idea. It's a doctrine of love. Hmm? Um, and so those paintings and whatnot, and these songs about that, they, they, they seek to kind of explain this philosophical idea. Hmm? The nature of reality is that it, it's it's at the center is loving, and love means it's, it means movement. It means outreach. Love wants to share itself. Hmm? In other words, God's not moving out of incompleteness like we are, a feeling of incompleteness, a feeling of emptiness. I need something. I'm lonesome. I need somebody else, a teddy bear or something. I have to add on to my life. Hmm? No. But God is moving out of fullness. When you're in love, you move too, right? How do you move? Is it sad? Just like that. There's dancing and so overflow. So it's a big topic. Then. Yes, sir. Could it be said in this tradition that the ego is locked into five sensory perceptions, such as what we see, smell, taste, touch, and hear? And if so, would unifying that lower self of the five senses with a higher self represent a step forward in our spiritual evolution? If that concept of higher self exists? If I understand what you're asking correctly, forgive me if I don't, you're asking if your senses, for example, your sense of sight, your sense of hearing and taste, could all be somehow applied in relation to the center, that your egoic small self that's based on sense perception of the world would disappear and another, something like that? And a step forward. Yeah, in fact, it said something like this. This is bhakti. You're in the right place for that kind of thinking. Because in some forms of yoga, the means to kind of free oneself from that small egoic sense of self that's formed by our sense perception, as you said, tied to our senses and so forth, is to close down the senses. Let's say, you know, go live in a cave. So what are you going to hear in there? What are you going to see? Compared to like, you know, city lights and so forth and all the advertisements and car horns and so on, babies crying and whatever. Hmm? So to, 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 there's one type of yoga or some types of yoga that seek to just kind of remove us from the possibilities largely of sense perception, and to control and shut down, so to speak, those senses from interacting with their objects, which then forms that ego. But in bhakti tradition, we're doing like you say, but you're thinking. We take the same senses and we apply them in a particular way. We apply them in relation to the self. Like, for example, we... Rishikena, Rishikesha, Sevanam. So, it's bhakti. So... For example, let's say you use, let's say you like to use your your speech. That's also a sense, right? The tactile, the sense, the, the tongue has a, is tactile. It's it, it tastes and it also vibrates. Hmm? So let's say you like to vibrate a certain type of song. That's creating a certain type of egoic self, right? And you like to listen to certain type of songs. So between your singing and you're hearing, you're forming that 
small, egoic, conventional sense. Now, if you could, if so, if you stop hearing those songs, then okay, then we're going to get somewhere. But wouldn't it be easier to sing a certain type of song and listen to a certain type of song that would stop the sense of hearing and and our speech from being in contact with material sense objects and forming a material ego. And so this is the, this is the idea of bhakti. In other, words, in other words, we sing. We're using our senses, right? We are eating tonight. I understand too. Archie has cooked a, a feast, so we're gonna we're gonna taste. But there's in bhakti, we learn how to taste, how to hear, how to speak, how to touch, in such a way that they are all in in connection with the divine. And so. Yes, it's a step forward. It's a step forward in a big way because not only does it dissipate or eradicate, if you will, the false ego that comes from having those senses attached to things and creating an identity, but it fosters a real sense of identity in relation to the divine. So it's a big step forward. Yes, What I mean by that is, is that in in the Eastern tradition that, that uh, I'm representing, we have a th- as as you as you know, theory of reincarnation, right? So that this atma is taking birth in different forms again and again and again, hmm? and what's propelling that is 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 the karmic repercussions of how the self is conducting itself, primarily in the human form of life. So. We make certain choices, and there are consequences for the choices. Mm-hmm. And so, here's a, here's a unit of existence that never dies, called the self. Mm-hmm. Everything around it is dying. Things come, things go. Here today, gone tomorrow. Here today, gone tomorrow. Right? I've identified with those things that are here today and gone tomorrow. So I'm identifying with this particular realm, although I'm of a different realm because I endure. Mm-hmm. So I die. My body dies. My consciousness is identified with a realm where things come and go. So I stay in that realm because that's where I'm identified. And things come to form around me and take a shape around me according to my wants and my desires and my actions in the past. And this is all the karmic repercussion, right? So this has been going on for a long time, since forever. And so in all these forms of life, we're taking... And especially in human form of life, there's choice. So there, this is there, and many human form of life, you may have had. So for long, that means there's a debt, huge debt. Now in this life, if you begin giving, and you begin giving, giving, giving in a systematic way, which is called yoga, then this is how you diminish that debt. This is how you. Yeah. Krishna. Yeah, like say Krishna, let's say, for example, now we are doing yoga, we are chanting Hare Krishna. Okay? So this then is erad- eradicating that karmic debt. Hmm? Now you're giving and in a giving in a big way. Hmm? So the karmic debt is, is being diminished. This is like I said, you come under the guidance of the guru, the guru is going to negotiate with the debtors 
let's say you owe because you've taken for so many lives. You've taken, in other words, for, to live. In other words, to live, uh, we have to kill in this world, whether it be animals or plants or insects or whatever, hmm? to breathe. To live materially, one living being is food for another. That's a fact. So that's the whole karmic implication. So spiritual life needs to come out of that. And we, if we come under good guidance, then we can do that. So you're doing that. Does that help? All right. You might have more questions, but you might also be hungry. So <laughs> <laughs> that might be your question. When will he stop talking? I do appreciate that. And I did stop earlier, but you asked the question. So I thank you for your time. And it's, again, always a pleasure to come here. So I hope to return again in the near future. Thank you very much. Thank you.